Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Speak On It, history and genealogy conversations with Janice and We invite you to join us on Thursdays at 8 p.m. for an engaging exchange with us and our special guests as we cover various topics regarding history, genealogy, and your personal family history stories. Hello, I'm Janice Gilliard. And I'm Chericana Feliciano. Welcome to Speak On It, History and Genealogy Conversations with Janice and Chericana. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to find us on Facebook and Twitter. Today, we are joined by our guest, Ms. Leslie Anderson. Leslie Anderson, a native Virginian, is the owner of Anderson Historic Research, LLC, and a former reference librarian at Alexandria Library, local history, special collections branch. Named a Virginia Humanities Scholar in 2020, she won the 2013 NGS Family History Writing Contest. Her publications include Virginia Slave Births Index, 1853 to 1865, Project Editor, Alexandria, co-author, and the Magazine of Virginia Genealogy. Leslie holds a Master of Science in Library Science, and her genealogical education includes GRIP, G-R-I-P, I-G-H-R, and GenFed. She's a member of OGS, NGS, and VGS. She blogs at First U.S. Colored Calvary, Private Lives, Public Records. Welcome to Speak On It, Leslie Anderson. Hi, everybody. Thanks for inviting me this evening. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, we're looking forward to this interview. So our first question, who were the men that made up the first U.S. Colored Cavalry, and where did they come from? The U.S. Colored Cavalry was a regiment established in Fort Monroe, just outside Hampton in Virginia, in 1863. A regiment consists of about 1,100 to 1,200 men. And within that regiment, you've got about 10 companies of about 100 men each. These men who enlisted in the colored cavalry were freemen, freedmen, excuse me, and freedom seekers. The cavalry unit, though, also included white officers, some of whom had already held office, held their position, held their rank in the United States. They themselves might have started as privates in New York State, and there was even one officer who served from Sweden. Now, most of the men were from the southeastern part of Virginia, Norfolk, Portsmouth, Princess Anne County, now Virginia Beach, Isla White, Hampton, which, and, and Warwick, um, Warwick counties. Well, they're now Newport News and Hampton. But there were also men who escaped from the northeastern part of North Carolina. There were some who enlisted from Maryland and some who enlisted from as far away as New York State, Buffalo. Wow. Mm. Wow. When were they mustered out, and what did your research reveal about what became of their lives after the war? When, interestingly, um, when they could, they returned to their homes. Um, 
although that shouldn't be a surprise because human nature hasn't changed. You know, human nature hasn't changed. They were mustered out in 1866 in this little piece of Texas on the Gulf called Brazos Santiago. And, in fact, all the black troops were sent there at the end of the, the Civil War, ostensibly to protect the United States from, um, from those in Mexico who wanted to support the, to continue to support the effort, but also because that was where white Americans felt safe. At this point, you had thousands of African-American men who'd been trained to fight. They knew how to bear arms. They'd seen combat. And so it was the feeling of the United States government that it was better to corral, if you will, all these men who had served for their country and for their freedom. And I can tell you that in in my own family, um, my great-great-grandfather, Edward R. Pitt, and his older brother, William Thomas Pitt, had lived in Nanceman County. They were free people as early as 1840. They were farmers and property owners. They enlisted as cavalrymen and returned to Nanceman County after the war and multiplied their land holdings together with their father and their other brothers. But there were some men, surprisingly, who after the war, settled in, it was Mississippi. And, you know, one very sad story. There was a veteran who had survived several skirmishes and and, and cases of of gunfire, and he was killed in a huge flood of the Mississippi River. Um, there There was an irony there. There were some young men who survived the war but who died in accidents in Brasso, Santiago, there was a young man who was detailed to the mail boat, and he fell off the vessel and drowned. Um, oh, no. There were several, wow. yeah, several young men who, during their service and after the war, died in hospitals. And it was particularly devastating. It was financially devastating for their families. But in, in my research, so far the pension applications that I've reviewed page by page, the men went home when they could. And so what about the, you kind of touched on this a little bit, you know, what about the soldiers who didn't survive? What impact did their death have on their families? Ooh, it, it was really rough. Um, there were myriad implications. Let's start with the widows. The widows hmm. very often were left destitute. Um, they may or may not have had children who could contribute to their financial well-being. Um, In some cases, these widows remarried, which was another factor in whether or not their pension applications were successful. It was not uncommon for testimony on their pension benefit application to be supported by the ministers of their church, people they'd grown up with, sometimes people they've been enslaved with. Sometimes a former enslaver made a statement on behalf of the widow. Hmm. In very many cases, the widow's applications were submitted to a special examiner, and these individuals got very specific and went into very intimate questioning um, about Hmm. um, the wife's status. 
and in fact whether they could prove they were married. And um, as we know, marriages by slave custom were not legal. If two free people married, that was a different story. But if a free person married an enslaved person, that was typically by slave custom and with the permission of the enslaver. And then you get the case of the mothers, like the young man who drowned on the mailboat in Brazos. Her application was in play for about 30 years. So we're coming up on 1900, and this woman has had no assistance from the federal government. There was a case of one of these men in the Color Calvary, U.S. Color Calvary. There was an intervention, um, a private bill in Congress, and that was able to happen because of that congressman's relationship with the former enslaver. Um, So it, it got really complicated and really difficult. Then, of course, you've got those cases where the soldier died, his widow Mm -hmm. had not survived long after, and you've got minor children. In those cases, a guardian, sometimes someone that the soldier had served with, sometimes the soldier's relative, would um, apply for a pension on behalf of the surviving children. But primarily, it was financially devastating which affected housing, it affected food, Um, you know, and ultimately education. You know, and this is really important stuff because I think, you know, we don't always think about the impact that a soldier's, you know, death has on these relatives. I mean, now things are a lot different, but particularly back then, that was often, you know, what sustained the family was the husband's, money um and so this is you know it really you you paint a really vivid and important picture you know for us to to consider well thank you this was the the beginning well i won't say it was the beginning it certainly advanced um and expanded um the pension program for united states um service people which is why i wanted to launch this blog on veterans day and this is the third anniversary today um, I do want to oh, wow. mention, though, <laughs> yeah, I do want to mention, though, that there are plenty of stories of tragedy and suffering. On balance, there were also stories of triumph. Um, one of the first soldiers that I featured had been a deacon in the church that my family now attends in my hometown, North of um, Virginia, First Baptist Church on Butte Street. He was the deacon. He lived into his 90s. And this is what surprised me. One of the people who supported his application, remember he lived into the 1900s, one of the people who supported his application was the minister who officiated my parents' marriage. And that was, get out. (laughs) That was like, oh, whoa. (laughs) And, And one of the reasons I got excited about this project when I began it three years ago, well, more than three years ago, three years ago I started the blog, was because in doing the research on these men and these women and children, the addresses they were naming were streets that I knew. They were streets right. in the neighborhood around the corner where I'd grown up. Um, they were the streets where in high school we went to the other, you know, the rival football games. Um, so this mm-hmm. was 
very personal, you know, very personal right. and very familiar. That's awesome. So, That's awesome. Why and how why and how should a researcher make use of pension applications? And, you know, before you mention that, I actually have um, a pension file for one of my ancestors that's approximately 150 pages, and Mm -hmm. the information that was in it was just mind-blowing. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure our listeners would love, you know, your response to that. Why and how should a researcher make use of pension applications? Oh, man, there's there's just so much. You've got a gold mine there, uh, 150 pages. Um, mm-hmm. I would imagine yes. that tracks several years, and certainly um, dozens of um, witnesses, um, people who gave yes. depositions and affidavits, and some of them repeatedly, especially if something is extended. Mm-hmm. And these pension applications, particularly those longer ones, will very often if the person is um, applying, if the soldier, the, the veteran is applying on the basis of um, illness or injury related to service, there's going to be a lot of medical information. There will be diagrams of surgeons' reports. There will be signatures from the doctors. <clears throat> there will be information about the doctors, where they practiced, where they lived, and that can be helpful in some cases. It's, it's not unheard of for some doctor's ledgers, their account books, their patient books, to be preserved in private collections, sometimes in libraries, sometimes in museums and historical societies. So you can look there for research. But I think the most important thing, and especially in those larger pension applications, is the story of an individual that person's family, and their community. And so it's not guaranteed, but it is very likely that you will learn the names of people that don't turn up anywhere else in the record. You're going to learn mm-hmm. about places. There's a place in, near the Dismal Swamp called Wollaston. Um, it's an estate. And one of the enslavers gave testimony. And a few people over in a different company reported that they had resided at Wollaston. They were living in Wollaston when they were giving the testimony. That kind of thing should not be ignored. So whether mm-hmm. it's an historic property or not on a, on a national register or a state register, it's important to go look at Wollaston and look at that community and look at the local history of that place. The other thing, you're going to get relationships defined in these pension applications, whether they are what we would call full-blown relationships, whether they are nephews. Someone will say, I enlisted the same day as my cousin. Um, I had 13 children. Two of them are living now. And the names and dates are very often reported. And so there's a lot of specific individual information, and again, on the family and the community. Now, it's important to keep in mind, though, that not every veteran applied for a pension. But what was common 
was that a group of men or the wives or the children who were neighbors or who went to the same church or who had worked at the same company, let's say the grocery store, the lumber yard after the war, it was not uncommon for them to um, present affidavits or depositions on behalf of their neighbors. Now what happened sometimes too, though, is that a neighbor would rat somebody out <laughs> if they hmm. believed that the neighbor was engaged in behavior that did not qualify them to receive a pension. Hmm. And um, some of it is, is really soap operish, you know. <laughs> I mean, some of it, <laughs> and some of it is pretty petty. Um, I, I don't, you know. I, I'm very careful, though. Um, I'm very careful when I include certain information, though, uh, because although this is a, a, as far as I understand it, this is a public document, there's still the matter of being sensitive to any descendants who may not even know their descendants today. They might find out tomorrow or next week that they're descendants, and they can pursue it and find out all the, the details, you know. But... Um, you can't lose. You can't lose if you're fortunate enough to have a pension application for um, your relative. Now, here's the other thing to consider. When you start researching your soldier, uh, you want to look at everyone else in his company, which was what I did mm -hmm. for my great-great-grandfather and his brother. Because it is also not uncommon you, if you can identify the company that your, your person served in and you want to look at other pension applications from that company, it's useful because that soldier might mention your relative. They might mention mm. your relative's widow or child. You know, there are any number of comrades in arms who said, I knew John Smith was married. His wife came to visit him at Fort Monroe regularly until we shipped out to Brasso Santiago. Okay. And there's a specific reference. I served with Jack Brown. He did not apply for a pension. That was phenomenal. You know, that that's evidence right there that your person right. served but did not apply. So yeah, it it could be disappointing, but it's not a lost cause if you cannot locate a pension application for your your target ancestor. So don't give up and you got to get creative with this stuff. Um got to get creative you know, and don't give up. Yeah, yeah, and it what you what you mentioned about relationships too um you know was was true for me. In my case, my um my great aunt had dumped like well grand aunt, right? That's a technical term. She dumped mm -hmm. like a bunch of papers and documents, you know, you know, she gave them to me because she knew I was interested in family history. She was kind of the family mm -hmm. historian. And I'm going through it, I'm going through it, and it's looking like it's just a bunch of, like, old medical bills from one of my mm. my second grand aunt. And I'm like, I don't know why she gave me this. But mm -hmm. within it, I found letters um, from the VA um, to my second great-grandmother. And she mm. was, her husband my second great grandfather was in the Civil War, and she mm -hmm. was trying to get, um, you know, his pension. And mm -hmm. through those letters, I was able to figure out. I, I learned that she was his second wife. So 
basically the, the tone from the VA was they were trying to get her, she had to prove that she was the lawful widow. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it looked like she, you know, wrote them back and forth. She was able to meet her burden of proof. Um, but like you said, I was able to confirm relationships. Like, okay, so she's not the first wife. So now when I do research for my second great-grandfather, I might want to look at, you know, other marriage records between him and somebody else. So it, it does open up just that one line, opened up mm-hmm. a whole new area of research for me. Yeah. Um, so it's very true. Mm-hmm. And, and that extends to siblings as well. Um, when I'm doing research, I'm not trying to go straight up the line to look up a person, right. you know, a direct I want to look at generations, so I'm going to look at my grandfather's siblings and their spouses, my grandmother's siblings and their spouses. And there are several cases in the First U.S. Colored Cavalry where siblings and cousins served. Um, hmm. They might not have all served in the same company, but they all served at the same time. I've got the Humphreys brothers who both went in under aliases. I've got the Charity Brothers from Southampton County, Virginia, one of whom had an alias and served in Second Co. at Calvary, but his three brothers served in First. And there are others who have the same last name, and not a name like Smith or Brown, and they aren't related at all. Hmm. So there's lots of so variety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we want to finish up this very interesting conversation. At this time, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back shortly for more with Leslie Anderson. Hello, and welcome to Speak On It, history and genealogy conversation with Janice and Shara Connor. We invite you to join us on Thursdays at 8 p.m. for an engaging exchange with us and our special guests as we cover various topics regarding history, genealogy, and your personal family history stories. Well, we're back with our guests, Leslie Anderson, and Shara Connor will continue with our next question. Awesome. So thanks for sticking with us. Um, so you mentioned a lot of uh, other resources. Um, can you kind of just take us through one more time other resources that were helpful in doing this research into the first U.S. Colored Calvary? Oh, there's a whole slew of them. And <laughs> <laughs> some of them are, are going to be more familiar to people than others. Um, and, and again, I... It, it would behoove the researcher to expand their thinking about the records and the resources. The um, documents and the record books that you're going to be looking for may not have colored, Negro, African-American in the, in the title, whether it's a database or a printed publication or a digital source. And um, th- those things that I would consider, you know, the obvious, the um, – Census before, censuses be, just before and, and just after the Civil War. I, I followed one family, this person from First Baptist Church, Butte Street in Norfolk, um, who was a commissary sergeant, but his daughter graduated from Howard Medical School. Wow. And I followed her career 
for a while, and I made a note of that in his personal sketch. Um, there was something I was unsure about where a widow said that she had a house, on a little brick house on the Wood Wharf in Portsmouth. And I thought the Wood Wharf referred to the material from which it was constructed. So I pulled out a map right. from that period of Portsmouth, and there are, there's a run of maybe six or eight or ten wharves, and the one on the far left from the way I was looking at the map was Wood Wharf. So maps can be oh. very helpful in clarifying things. Now, of course, you know, there was, there was no, um, the 1890 census did not survive the, the fire and the water damage and all that. Uh, not all of them, but... Um, the ones in Virginia, when you scan them, you will, especially when you line them up with the population census, you will see that, again, these men lived within proximity or their widows were in proximity. And, but you've got to be aware, in, in some cases they were, you know, it's real straightforward. The abbreviation would say one, USCC. In some cases, though, on that special census, it would say one USCT. But I would confirm that that person served not in the infantry but in the cavalry. And so if I'd been looking just for one USCC, I would have been out of luck. You know, right. Interestingly, too, if an individual, I could follow an individual in the city directory, you know, post-war. I could follow that person, and then it's in the 1900s. You, you tend to get a crisscross. You're more likely to get a crisscross directory in the back of the city directory, and so you can search by address rather than by name. So that happens from time to time. But also to go back to the census, it's also very interesting too. You know, the agricultural census, um, the non-population census, um, can be very helpful for my. Pitt brothers, my Pitt family, that was how I learned that in 1850 they owned 60 acres of land. By 1880, wow. they had increased, increased their land holdings to, 18, to um, 240. They had con, con, quadrupled their land holdings in a 30-year period. Amazing. And That's amazing. The, the, these schedules are important because very often, as in my own family, there is no oral history. There's no memorabilia. There's no stories, of, you know, that were passed down from generation to generation. And newspapers. Don't want to forget newspapers. <laughs> um, yes. Per yes. Particularly, but not always, but in particular, the black-owned and operated newspapers um, that might have an obituary or a reunion of black soldiers. And then, of course, mm -hmm. you've got your, your church histories, your anniversary books, and, and your services, um, family Bibles. I used all these and more. And one of the great things, well, that's going to be a cross-reference, so um, you would have to know that your person served. But when mm -hmm. I looked at the Library of Virginia website, which has transcribed the, the poll books for the 1867 election, when you look there, I found many of the first U.S. Colored Cavalry who had registered to vote, and that, that voting determined um, the Constitution.
it was going to look at you know how right. the Constitution in Virginia would be moving forward. Right, right. Those are excellent resources. I'm glad you mentioned the newspaper for sure. It's it's such a goldmine for so much information. Mm-hmm. I would also add a, a dictionary too because. I learned, you know, with military uh, records, it, it's got its own language. You know, military's got its own lingo, too. So uh-huh. also have a dictionary handy. <laughs> yeah, you know, and there are special reference books. I've got a reference book on Civil War medicine. I've got one on war slang. Um, you know, I've oh, got cool. A, that is cool. On, you know, universe. You know, the uniform and the armaments. I mean, I had no interest in any of this stuff before I started <laughs> this project. But you know, <laughs> to produce an accurate, you know, um, representation, I needed to learn more about this. And 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 not to. And the, really, another important thing too, when researching your Civil War soldier or sailor, is to look at local histories. They don't have yeah. to be formal mm-hmm. histories, although that helps. But, you know, you pick up something in one of those, you know, highway visitor centers or a used bookstore or a museum gift shop. Yeah. You know, you're going to yeah. find information in those 32-page pamphlets that you're not going to find in a 320-page hardback. And the, point. the main thing is to know that, you know, we are in the our ancestors are in the historical records and newspapers. It was interesting that you pointed that out. I have one ancestor that I was able to piece together his entire life through newspapers. Um, he wrote letters, um, and they would publish the letters in the paper. He would just talk about his life, where he worked, where he was a pastor. Um, there was one ancestor that wrote letters to his wife and just talked about the different battles, where he was at the time. And then he had a neighbor that was serving with him, and the neighbor's wife never wrote to him. So he Mm. would ask, you know, my ancestor, can you include this portion and tell your wife to tell my wife this is what I'm thinking and why won't she write me? I just thought, I was like, wow. So, you know, it's really, really important to, you know, know, we had this um, conversation um, previously and that was when I started, I never in my wildest dreams ever thought that I would find a Civil War ancestor. So far I've found about, I think, close to five. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just interesting. You know, one person was discharged because, well, we talked about what his issue was, but I was like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> so when you say, you know, very detailed information, it's very detailed. And then for the Civil War file that I have, the um, pension file, I'm sorry, that I have for my ancestor, he he names his wife. He names his his children, and then he had to get, as you mentioned earlier, affidavits. So uh-huh. he would travel. He had to. Tra- it was it was really kind of painful to read. You know how yeah. they just did not accept his word. You know, and they had to go and sit with an attorney and 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 get a take a witness statement. There are tons of witness witness statements, but that he had a farm, and it was so sad that he really didn't get the pension until you know it was quite close to the end of his life. Yeah, and I was like, wow. I, I just couldn't believe it. So there's a wealth of information in these records. Um, moving forward, as a daughter of a Tuskegee Airman, what does this research mean for you? Oh, man. You know, um, <laughs> I was, I have my father's initials. I bear my father's initials. Um, Lawrence Ellsworth Anderson, Jr. And my dad, when he was 12, 
in southwestern Pennsylvania was intrigued by the technology of aircraft, just like people are intrigued by various technologies, cutting-edge technologies these days. And growing up, he told my sister and me the story about hanging out at the airfield, washing down the planes, assisting the mechanics in exchange for flying lessons. This was when he was about 12, 13, or 14. So by the time he was 19, he had the most hours in the air of any civilian pilot in the country. So World War II happens. Tuskegee Airfield opens up. And my father is in charge of the ground school um, in Tuskegee. He really wanted to fly in combat. And I have to tell you, I'm so glad he didn't. You know, because Mm. I wouldn't be here to tell this story now. Maybe. Although the airmen lost very few people. There were some, you know, um, not practice, some training flights where there were Mm -hmm. accidents slash crashes. Um, But my father was never boastful about this. It was just a part of our growing up, um, Mm -hmm. something that we knew. And... um, I went to at least one reunion that these men had. It was here in Washington, D.C., and it was so impressive to meet these men who were already, I suppose, in their 60s and 70s. Um, there was such a, such dignity about them and, and their mm-hmm. bearing and their commitment. They didn't want favors. They didn't want handouts, as they would put it. And it, it, This is like such a... Um, a generational thing. They just wanted an even playing field. And right. so I grew up with that sense of of duty and knowing your history mm-hmm. and transmitting it, even informally, um, with the people in your life and, and, you know, the people who succeed you in life. So, you know, our children, our nieces and nephews. And so this is something that um, this is my bit. You know, this is one of the things I'm doing um, toward that effort. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. Okay. And I, I think, I know my father would be really happy about this, what I'm doing. He passed away 30 Aww. years ago. So it's. I feel really good about it, really good about it. And um, it's also also a part of of teaching history or of learning history. Instead of saying, you should know this, it's, guess what did you know? And that's the kind of learning you hold on to. That's what you remember. um, Before we move forward, we're going to take a caller. I'm so sorry. We're going to take a caller from 314. They wanted to share with us. Okay. Yeah, this is a, my name is Pianchi. I'm calling from the Midwest and the South, the Delta. And I was, I read this title, and the day being Veterans Day, <clears throat> I was going to commend whoever decided to take this project on. I really think it's wonderful that they did to talk about uh, that regiment. And if Thanks. if I could, if I could add do some research on uh, Martin Delaney. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, 
Do you know him? Have you heard of him? I know of him. A doctor, surgeon, right? Yeah, he was uh, he was an assistant, and uh, he's from Charlestown, not Charleston, but Charlestown, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, in Pittsburgh during the time of the cholera breakout, he stayed there and attended to patients. Unlike we see today with the pandemic, where everybody wants to run. But uh, and also the uh, you, you may mention about the uh, Tuskegee Airmen. I think there's an airfield in Alabama where they still fly out of that airport and do uh, offer aviation training. And I think it's a, a video on YouTube about that uh, airfield. I tell you, it's it's really a it's something that, matter of fact, I tell you, I've seen Steve Kivo, who does YouTube videos on YouTube, mm-hmm. and he went for a ride in, with a barnstormer, this young black man who was, who was a stunt pilot, and this was just within the last couple of years there at that field in, in uh, Alabama. So, no, it's really good. To, and these was American soldiers that fought mm-hmm. many American wars, including going out to the Western Front and fight wars out there, too. And, yeah, uh, you know, and you're absolutely right. Moulton Field Municipal Airport. Yeah, that's it, Moulton Field, that yes. And yes, that's it, Moulton Field. Airmen, um, the Tuskegee Airmen area is a national historic site in Alabama managed by the National Park Service. And and I've been there in and, and, uh, and a visit with my family, um, but you're absolutely right. You know, this history of black men and women um, in the armed services is one that we can truly be appreciative of. And, again, mm-hmm. that's why I wanted to launch this, um, my blog, on Veterans Day, because my thing is not what battle they fought in or skirmish, although I'm certainly respectful of that. I was more interested in them as human beings, as husbands, fathers, brothers, sons, mm-hmm. um, and in their post and pre-Civil War lives. So um, that's how this blog came to be. And thank you so much for for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. Yes, we thank appreciate you so the call. much for the call. Yes, sure, Connor. Yeah, it's, it's, I just, you know, I was thinking, too, about uh, the Delaney um, sisters. I believe um, Dr. Delaney had two daughters who became dentists, I want to say. And I yeah. remember they launched a Excellent book, book. <laughs> yeah, wrote. Having mm-hmm. Our Say, which I think ended up on TV. And that was, like, my first as a child, like, my introduction to, like, Delaney and um, to C.G. Airman. So, yeah, that's. That was a really nice memory that he kind of sparked when he mentioned that. So thank you to the caller. (laughs) (laughs) So this was a really, really amazing conversation. Um, What are some parting words? Yeah, some parting words that you'd like to share with our listeners. Oh, man. Um, I don't have anything profound to say. (laughs) I I would (laughs) like to (laughs) encourage people um, let me rephrase it. I recently asked my mother um, for some words of wisdom, and she said, 
very quickly. Do as much as you can as soon as you can. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. And, and that's powerful. I mean, that's really powerful. And I have thought about that nearly every day in those months since she shared that with me. And so, yeah, I'd like to pass that on to listeners. Um, Do as much as you can as soon as you can because there's a lot to be done. Yes, absolutely. Those are great parting words. Ms. Leslie Anderson, thank you so much for sharing with us and our listeners. We truly enjoyed this conversation. And for our listeners, please be sure to check out her blog, First U.S. Colored Cavalry, Private Lives, Public Records. That's at first, spelled number one, S-T, uscoloredcavalry.wordpress.com for weekly posts every Monday. And she can also be reached at leslie1863 at hotmail.com. We thank you for joining us, and we look forward to sharing with you during our next segment of Speak On It. Speak On It is a podcast and is immediately available to listen to at your leisure. Speak On It is sponsored by Bernice Bennett of Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Thank you.